Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tony Stewart, who is uh, uh, Gertrude Conway uh, Vanderbilt Chair in Humanities uh, at Vanderbilt University. Uh, he, he's now an emeritus professor. And we'll be speaking about a fascinating uh, work that he's done, two works, in fact, that are interrelated. Uh, one is Witness to Marvels, uh, Sufism and Literary Imagination, that is available open access uh, uh, from the University of California Press. The link is in the podcast notes. And uh, a related uh, translation of the works he analyzes in that work um, called Needle at the Bottom of the Sea, Bengali Tales from the Land of the 18 Tides. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. So um, one thing worth mentioning at the outset is that this, uh, your witness to marvels um, has been recognized. It was the recipient um, of the Anand Kentish uh, Kumaraswamy Book Prize awarded by the Association for Asian Studies, was it not? Yes, it was. <laughs> well, it must be uh, some book. <laughs> so tell us a little, <laughs> tell us a little bit about um, the backstory and your interest in this area. Yeah, actually, th- th- this book, uh, Witness to Marvels, actually pulls together um, decades of work uh, that I had not uh, even imagined when I started my academic career. Uh, when I was doing my dissertation uh, back in the uh, early 80s, uh, I kept running across uh, all these references to a figure named uh, Satyapir, or in Bengali, Shatyapir. And this figure uh, was supposed to be uh, uh, Krishna or Narayan and uh, a Sufi saint uh, combined into a single figure. And in some versions was actually considered to be uh, Krishna and Muhammad or Krishna and uh, Narayana and Allah. Now, what was confusing about this is that I couldn't find anything in the secondary literature about this figure. And I mean, very, very little, just brief mentions. But I found over 800 manuscripts and about 150 printed texts by well over 100 authors. And I realized that this was one of the uh, hidden gems, I guess you would call it, of uh, uh, early modern Bengali literature. And I was astonished that uh, nothing had been uh, written about it 
in spite of the fact that obviously Chateaupierre had a massive following. So that intrigued me enough to start pursuing uh, the lives of the, what I've come to call the fictional peers. And uh, I call them fictional because they're not found in any of the historical records, the Persian court records or any of those uh, related uh, documents. Um, and uh, yet they're widely popular uh, all over Bengal for four or five centuries now. You know, um, I find your project fascinating on a number of levels, and I cover a number of projects and different sorts of methods. Uh, I happen to um, study narrative um, in, in my own scholarly life. Right. And there's a, a really um, significant concept in your very subtitle that Folks, I think, sometimes underestimate, you know, the power of narrative um, is far more profound and pervasive and evocative than its historical veracity, mm -hmm. right? And so what is, this, what is this literary imagination that you talk about? Well, I, one, of the, one of the issues um, is uh, the, when I have mentioned these tales to others, when I've talked to other scholars in Bengal and Bangladesh um, about them, uh, and in the few references that you'll find to them, uh, they're always classified as folk tales or old wives tales or something like that. And by classifying them that way, just by giving them that, that you know, genre uh, moniker, it has a tendency to dismiss them as any, they're not serious in other words. And what I found was they're doing, uh, because they're fictions, they're doing a very different kind of work than, say, the lives of the saints, the, you know, the great Sufi masters, uh, or the lives of Muhammad, you know, the, the, I mean, not lives in plural, but the life of Muhammad, um, because they're, they're introducing uh, concepts into Bengal uh, that previously hadn't been there. I mean, Islam came into Bengal now. It's been in Bengal for centuries. But when it first arrived, uh, these stories had a way of making Islam familiar and making it natural to a Bengali environment. Uh, and so in this sense, they sort of uh, uh, make people comfortable with the cosmology of Islam uh, with some of the key figures. And yet at the same time, they're not uh, overt theological uh, documents. They're not uh, trying to uh, establish some kind of Sharia-based uh, orientation, but rather they are telling stories about figures uh, that, that make Islam uh, uh, comfortable in a Bengali environment. In fact, to the point where Islam in Bengal now is Bengali, there's no question about it. At the same time, these stories, while uh, introducing uh, Islamic ideas uh, into uh, the environment, they, um, they also wrote Bengal uh, into the larger Islamic literature. Uh, it, so it goes both ways. It's not just coming into Bengal, but it's writing Bengal into uh, the larger Islamic world. And I think that's part of the power of the fiction, whereas the you know, a, an overt theological uh, proposition would not do that in the same way. So uh, it connects uh, in a completely different discursive realm than um, um, what we're normally thinking of as mainstream Islam. Um, my primary teaching these days is um, continuing studies 
Um, and uh, so often I, 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 when teaching uh, the content of a particular narrative, whether it's in the vignette from the Mahabharata or the, the Devi Mahatmya, you know, talking about the power of storytelling, I often think of it as, well, stories teach you when you least expect it. And they do the heavy lifting of theology and philosophy, but in such an unassuming manner. And I think perhaps um, a, a more ancient uh, Sanskritic analog to this very phenomenon is the Puranas themselves dismissed mm-hmm. for for decades and now, you know, over a century as in, as sort of debased uh, folk tales, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Brahmanical conceits, but there, there's so much there because they're sort of slipping beneath the radar of the discursive um, engagement of the of the yeah. overt discursive engagement, and they're penetrating culture and uh, there thereby I think on such a more widespread and perhaps uh, um, long-lived uh, manner. Now, in terms of this gold mine that you came across. <laughs> That's, that is what it is. <laughs> um, what is um, uh, literally remarkable about it? What is what is unique about it? Why is it so significant? Well, there's a number of things, but um, the first item, <clears throat> the first uh, approach that I took to try and, and understand what was going on with this literature, or rather not what was going on with the literature, but what was going on with the scholarship that refused to acknowledge this literature. And I relied on, um, I, I ran across, uh, in, in some ways quite by accident, um, uh, an, an article uh, on agnotology, which is, uh, in social scientific terms or humanistic terms, it, it tends to be uh, your inability to see something because of the categories uh, of knowledge that you have been operating with. And in this case, uh, if the, as soon as you classify something in a genre, uh, it disappears in the case. So I, I started looking uh, at it as an issue of our ignorance of what was right in front of our noses. Now, one of the reasons for this is because today uh, in the political climate of India and and Bangladesh, the last couple of centuries, actually century and a half, let's say, um, the uh, Hindu-Muslim relationship has been assumed to be uh, a negative relationship, that it's fraught with all kinds of conflict and that kind of thing, and that they're mutually exclusive communities. Uh, what was so obvious, and here's where agnotology plays a role, what was so obvious was that they weren't, uh, they, they were not uh, mutually exclusive in the way that we think of them today in this early modern period. And so, you know, we end up um, looking at these uh, these texts, and it was saying very clearly, Shatopir is half Muslim, half Hindu, and, and Hindus and Muslims both worshipped this figure, uh, they they offer the shirni, which is a very simple little offering of uh, a rice powder and and uh, sweet. Uh, and so, uh, how is that? I mean, it's so obvious that it's it's breaking down this stereotype, and yet we we fail to recognize it. And so, um, I started really looking at ways to talk about uh, the Hindu Muslim interaction in this early modern period. Uh, without having to refer to Hindus and Muslims uh, as nouns. That made me start looking at rather than what the texts are, rather to look at what the texts are trying to do. What do they do? 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a, in a way, it's a, just a restatement of the old form and function. Uh, people were so caught up on the form that they failed to see what the texts were actually doing, the function of the text. And so that really opened up um, uh, a lot of uh, avenues for inquiry. The other thing was uh, just the use of the terms. I started trying to find a way, rather than talking about Hindus and Muslims uh, as nouns, uh, rather looking at these figures <clears throat> as adjectives, Hinduani, Mushalmani. Uh, and, and when you start doing that, uh, it really radically changes how you uh, read a text. So you, you eliminate those large categories, instantiated categories that are exclusive. Um, so, uh, and in fact, one of the ways this started, um, I was looking at a figure uh, whose most famous story is found in uh, Brenda Bondash's Chaitanya Bhagavad, which is a Gordia Vaishnava text. And he was a, a Muslim, uh, Jabon Hardidas, uh, Yavana Hardidas. Uh, and Hardidas uh, was a Sufi, and he was practicing. Uh, chanting the name. In fact, he demonstrated to the community how to chant the name best. And so he was a he was a Sufi practicing Krishna zikr. And I, you know, as I'm as I'm encountering this figure, and I'm actually working on a book right now, uh, uh, a small book, mind you, but a book on uh, uh, Jabon Hardidas. Uh, it made me realize that if you, you know, I've got a Muslim acting like a Vaishnava or a Hindu. But rather than calling him uh, a, even a Sufi, what I started doing, I said, what if I did a little exercise here? And every time I saw the word Jabun, which is Yavana, which is usually, it means foreigner. It, well, technically from Sanskrit, it means I, uh, Ionian, a Greek, but someone who's not from here. Uh, and in this case, um, almost always the Yavan or Jabun wears a hat and a beard. So I started translating the stories, talking about the man with the hat and the beard rather than a, a Muslim. And it was magical the way the story changed. And uh, so I, again, another example of how our categories completely blind us sometimes to uh, what should be obvious, but uh, isn't always. It's so resonant, so brilliant. In my, in my own personal sort of spiritual life, I've met a number of masters mm -hmm. and, and trained for years on and off many of whom were what we would think of uh, um, uh, uh, from the Edic perspective, uh, tantricas or, or practicing mm -hmm. some form of tantra. None of them would ever use that word. Mm. None of us use that word. It, it's, not some, it's not something that's identified with. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, through the scholarly mind, without question, uh, those practitioners would have been tantricas. Mm -hmm. And so it's utterly fascinating. And what uh, the turn that you're, you're making, uh, it, it, you're illumining in the text, the absence of an essentialization that we, yes. that we have grown so fond of both as scholars and as, and as folks in our, uh, our, our historical epoch. Yes. And so, so it's sort of like what comes to mind. Um, it's like there's certain, uh, verbs in english where i am afraid i i am hungry but in other languages like french you, you use the verb to have i have fear i have hunger they're transitory this is something i'm doing or that's happening yes in this moment but it's not what i am and i think um i think it's fascinating that shift 
is not just a corrective to perhaps the way we study and think performing scholarship, but more importantly, it seems to be in um, one that aligns with and therefore illumines the, the textual world, the world within the text. Mm-hmm. Um, why is the book called Witness to Marvels? <laughs> well, it's, uh, I mean, the stories themselves are marvelous by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, they are filled with, uh, you know, Sufi saints who can transmogrify into giants. In fact, on the cover, uh, and there's actually, um, uh, that's a, a bit of a tease because on the cover, we have this giant black uh, ogre-like figure uh, towering over a um, very well-dressed man who's carrying a sword and, and appears to be royalty. Uh, and it turns out that uh, the black figure is the good guy. Uh, that is Shatopir, who has been transmogrified into this, uh, has, has ship, shapeshifted himself into this uh, a monstrous figure to scare this king who was persecuting uh, uh, Sufi folkiers and peers. And he didn't want to kill him, but he's wanted to scare him to death. And so he does. So, uh, yeah, the, there's, uh, you know, there's uh, nymphs who fly uh, figures from one place to another. They magically go underground to these uh, magical kingdoms. Um, and they have uh, armies of tigers and crocodiles. In fact, one of my favorite stories, and I've translated the full so uh, uh, in uh, Needle at the Bottom of the Sea, the Rai Mungal um, tells the, the story of uh, Bordakan Gaji and, and Dokin Rai battling out. And um, they end up, uh, you know, in a, in a huge um, uh, sort of um, monstrous uh, conflict. But it's not over religion, uh, as you would, as it's usually talked about, because it's a Hindu and a Muslim. It's over the fact that one of them was insulted by the other. Uh, a devotee had not paid proper respects. And so they sick each other's armies of tigers on one another. And then finally, they're down to just the two of them. In the second story, in the in the Gajikalu Ochampabati Konarpunti, the the story of, of uh, Borakan Gaji takes a different turn. And there he has an army of tigers, but uh, Dokin Rai um, is uh, uh, protecting the princess that, that Gaji wants to marry. And so he goes and petitions the goddess to Ganga to give him uh, an army of uh, crocodiles. And so they battle it out. And uh, on the one hand, these are very humorous stories uh, because they're both sides are complaining bitterly about all the suffering and so forth, their broken teeth and claws and so forth. But but these marvelous encounters uh, that we see over and over and over again in these tales, and uh, that's part of the entertainment value. And I think that's one reason why they are, um, I think, misconstrued as just simple folk tales. Um, but they are truly marvelous. And that was easy to come up with that title, I have to say. Hmm. Fascinating. What would you say is the primary argument or ideal takeaway from this monograph? Well, first of all, uh, since none of the stories had ever been uh, analyzed, um, I I retold the stories and translated portions in the monograph. and I felt that we first had to establish that there were fictions. 
uh, and I use some of the you know uh, tried and true techniques for that, uh, literary critical techniques that have been uh, sort of circulating for decades. Um, and, and, you know, in a sense, a rather uh, simplistic approach, but since it hadn't been done, I really, I've been receiving a lot of pressure from people about calling these things fictions. Um, they didn't want to call them myths, but they also didn't want to call them fictions. And I felt that uh, I had to demonstrate that they were. But fictions have certain features, and one of them that I am following Mashery here and several other literary uh, theorists that they don't articulate overt theology, because if they do, they become religious propaganda and cease to be fictions. And in these tales, you never get any kind of uh, preaching. You don't get any kind of philosophical arguments about the nature of reality or or what constitutes salvation or, or even basic instruction in Sharia. Uh, or anything like that. Um, and so there are, there's a nod to it in the sense that you'll get a, a, an oblique reference. Uh, and that really sets these things apart. Now, if you look at some of the historical figures in the same time period, uh, there's most definitely theological and uh, uh, content based on proper uh, conduct and so forth. So that was the first thing. And the second thing is how do we uh, deal with characters that are they're producing new stories about these characters over a period of centuries? And the same sets of characters keep showing up in all of these uh, tags. And it turns out there's about seven or eight characters that are almost interchangeable in, in these tales. And how do we account for that? And then I, so I wanted to look at uh, how it was possible that these tales could continue to be productive uh, and new uh, in each generation. And so I borrowed um, uh, a, an idea uh, which I had been working on for many years, but I finally articulated it as uh, that stories, uh, what are the conditions of existence uh, that, that allow the story to come into existence? And that's the imaginaire. Uh, what I've called the imaginaire. Now I have to distinguish that from other people's use of imaginal and imagination and imaginaire, but uh, there are um, uh, four features of this arena, this discursive arena I call the imaginaire. Uh, and these four features really help to delineate uh, the conditions under which the story emerged. And uh, two of them are presuppositions and two of them are uh, intertextualities. So oh, obviously no text comes into existence ex nihilo. So uh, it has conversation partners uh, and sometimes the intertextualities are overt uh, and they're named. We know exactly you know, who, what's being invoked, say, you know, the uh, Bhagavad Purana or the Quran or something like that. Other times, it's assumed they're covert. They're not actually named, uh, but you need to know. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a, for instance, if you look, there's a whole lot of, uh, of poetry um, in uh, like, you know, in, in European countries where in those literatures, where if you don't know the Bible, 
then you miss a huge portion of the illusions that are in, the, even though they're not overtly stated. So that's the kind of, of covert uh, intertextuality that's present. Then on the presuppositional level, uh, I looked at two things. One is um, what are the uh, logical presuppositions? That is, in this discourse, what counts as a valid argument, for instance? Uh, how can we draw um, a, a, a proper inference from what's being uh, proposed? So there are rules of discourse that um, are built into the text that have to be isolated. And then there's there are pragmatic concerns, uh, which are things like the, the genre um, that, that it takes, the language that's used. Um, and I wanna come back to language because this is really critical to my whole approach. Um, and you can identify then these, if you just identify those four factors, you actually have a pretty good sense of how a text was possible and what, what were its interlocutors. Um, and um, so ultimately I'm looking at how this literature uh, came into existence and how it interacts with the environment that it's in, that it comes out of and uh, when it's all new. Uh, we've not seen any of this before. And so that, uh, to me, that was the real uh, interest. It was in tracing that. And, you know, ultimately it's a kind of semiotic approach because, uh, you know, I use some of those uh, techniques and the, the book actually builds in semiotic terms uh, to a kind of final uh, look at Satya Peer, who has the biggest literature. So yeah, it's fascinating. Um, the, 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 your use of the imaginaire it reminds me very much of um, Umberto Eco. Mm. He's he's the primary theorist. I typically look at in spaces where I need to articulate a methodology mm -hmm. uh, for reading texts, and and this this simple but profound idea that texts are crafted with a model reader in mind, mm. consciously or unconsciously. There's a, there's a model reader that is implied by the very existence of the text. Yes. And that there are certain suppositions uh, of a threshold of awareness, or cultural awareness, intellectual awareness, et cetera, et cetera. And that um, um, that interplay is crucial. And, and, and so much of what you see reminds me of, of that idea in terms of what is this, what is expected? The, what is the sort of audience that this text expects? Mm -hmm. And therefore we can, we can learn about the world behind the text actually from the world within the text. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, fascinating. I might be a bit biased, but <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> um, so then just drive home. You, you've talked about in, in passing, but drive home the, the uh, what I would think of as maybe the sort of methodological intervention or innovation. Like what, what is new or novel or, or notable about the methodology of the book? Well, apart from, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a throwback in a sense because I was trained uh, as a structuralist and then semiotics was really central to what I do and still do. Um, all of my work has been permeated by that. So in that sense, it's not so much new, it's just that people haven't uh, thought about these kinds of texts in these terms. But there, there is a, a one issue that I've, um, I, I'll have to say, I've almost become militant about, and that is um, how I handle the language. Um, uh, there's, there's two 
parallel things here. One is I made a commitment when I was uh, just starting back in the 70s uh, when I was at Chicago and learning Bangla and, and really looking at the way the Department of South Asian Languages and Civilizations was approaching uh, area studies. And I made a commitment then that I would not only uh, analyze text historically or you know through literary critical tools or whatever, but that I would try to make texts available for people so that they could see for themselves exactly what I was talking about. I mean, it's one thing to, to talk about a text uh, and you can do that uh, with a lot of Western literature because the texts are out there and people know them uh, and you don't have to uh, retell the stories and so forth. But here, particularly with stories that are, are not known widely outside of Bengal, uh, for me to simply analyze them uh, without uh, some kind of intervention with respect to translation, um, uh, you know, was, uh, well, I just felt like it would, it, people would, in some cases, probably wouldn't even believe what I was saying. And let me give you an example. Um, I, tr I try to maintain the transliterations of words in Bengali that have come in from, say, Persian or Arabic. Um, I, I try to maintain them in their Bengali forms. And, you know, so, for instance, uh, Allah. Now, in, uh, you know, almost everybody who works on the Sufis would, would uh, spell that a-L-L, long A-H, okay? And so Allah. But the problem is, is in Bengali, you can't, uh, you can't produce that sound. If I were to uh, transliterate the Bengali, it would be pronounced Ola. And I'm sorry, the, the God of, of Islam is not <laughs> going to be, you know, understood very well as Ola, particularly given all the, you know, uh, in an English speaking environment, what that invokes. So then Bengali has to say, because they can't produce that uh sound, they have to produce Allah. Now for a lot of, of purists who work in Arabic and Persian, Allah is an abomination. Um, and they say, you know, you should change it to the regular spelling. But if I do that, I've actually made a decision about the content of that particular expression. The semantic field of the Bengali Allah, I argue, is not the same as the semantic field of the Persian or Arabic uh, equivalent. And uh, for instance, uh, and it really hit home uh, as I was translating a very obscure text one time, which is actually in Witness to Marvels, um, Allah is cruising around the heavens in a Viman, a Biman, which is a aerial car. And he's, he's cruising and he looks down and he sees a problem and he calls on one of the Sufis who are in heaven, Behisht, and he says, go down and, and fix this. Now, I, I have not encountered, <laughs> and maybe it's my own ignorance here, and my, my failure to have read widely enough, but I do not encounter images of the Persio-Arabic uh, version of God uh, cruising the heavens in a bimon. So that means then that the semantic field of Allah is actually different. They don't map one for one. Now, they, they have obvious reference, 
And I think anybody who is a, a Persian Arabic specialist or is familiar with the you know, more mainstream Islam would understand that Allah was uh, in somehow related to uh, the Persian Arabic God. But but in fact, uh, if I write that, um, you know, as they do in Persian Arabic transliteration, then we have uh, a misleading, uh, and then there's really going to be issues. Uh, so by doing the Bengali um, and keeping those transliterations, see, they've transliterated it from Persian, and it, mainly Persian, actually, and some Arabic into Bangla, then... By, by reproducing the Bangla, I preserve some of the changes that happen. And I'm sorry, religious traditions change as they move from region to region, as they change their languages. And that goes back to my imaginaire. The language here is Bangla. It is not Arabic. It's not Persian. It's not Turkish. It's not some other uh, language. Now, there's also a lot of Sanskrit that comes through uh, as well, and that gets a similar kind of treatment. So, Really, the language, uh, I think, has to be preserved to sort of uh, wake up the reader that th we're not talking about the same world here. We're talking about a distinctly Bengali world. And I think when we when we recognize that, then we read the stories differently, or at least we were open to options that maybe we wouldn't have uh, had had we you know put it all back into proper um uh you know persian or arabic and and actually there's a there's a flip side to this uh, that led me to to this decision that i think is very important um i i've worked for years and years and years in the uh british library and the old print catalogs from the late 1800s early 1900s um take bengali uh, texts, and they put them, the titles, they transliterate back into what they think must have been the Persian or the Arabic, which means that if you don't know Persian and Arabic and you don't know what to look for, you will never find these old Bangla texts about Muslims. And they, they've just disappeared. And I think part of it is the cataloging. And here we go back again to the structures of our knowledge hiding what should have been obvious. Uh, I continue to find texts in that library um, that I had read over before because I, I was unable to connect that Persian or Arabic with the with the Bengali. So like I said, I've become almost militant here. Uh, I don't, I don't want to beat it to death, but it's really central to my whole approach of trying to capture the Bengaliness if there is such a concept uh, of these texts, uh, as opposed to slotting them into our preconceived categories. I've said this before, and I'll say this again, really, <laughs> in studying pretty much all things Indic, the, the, the data will will transform your theory as you go. It, it'll have to, it'll, it'll have exactly. to. Because it's, it's, it, otherwise it's incommensurate, <laughs> you have no option. Um, uh, Tell us a bit more about the needle at the bottom of the sea, the sorts of stories that it contains, or um, something about your, your choices, uh, perhaps even um, perhaps even share um, a story or two or an idea that uh, that stayed with you or that was mm -hmm. most remarkable. Yeah, well, the the uh, the stories, um, four of the stories 
play a pretty major role in the uh, Witness to Marvels. But in, in Witness to Marvels, I was unable to, to include the full story. Um, and as I said, I have this commitment to, to making texts available so people can see for themselves. Uh, they don't have to take my word for it that Allah cruises around in the heavens in a, in a beamon when they see the translation. So that was part of the, part of the uh, logic behind it. But I also find that these stories, um, when you actually start looking at the nature of the language, the nature of expression, uh, they're actually considerably more sophisticated than most people are aware of. And I took the three uh, most prominent stories, which all feature uh, the same characters, uh, or, or most of the same characters. Um, Bordakan Gaji, uh, who is the Sufi saint, uh, uh, Dokim Rai, who is uh, actually a godling. He is in the lineage of Shiva uh, and uh, has you know, all kinds of powers and is, is the original ruler of the Shundarban. Uh, mangrove swamps, and then uh, Bonvivi story, which is the latest of the three. Well, now the first story, the Rai Mongol, um, has uh, the probably the most one of the most famous uh, uh, tales buried within it. There's three story, three major stories within it, and that is the conflict between Bordokan Gaji and Dokin Rai over the insult. Uh, ultimately, um, as they fight. They, uh, they slay one another simultaneously, so they're both dead. Uh, but Borakan Gaji had received a boon from Muhammad that uh, when he was killed, he would instantly pop back to life, which he did. Uh, whereas uh, Dokin Rai, uh, the Hindu godling, required the intervention of uh, God to uh, be brought back to life. Now, who's this God? The god is Satyapir, Shatopir, who comes in. He's got a Bhagavata Purana in one hand and a Quran in the other. <laughs> and, he, and he starts and he, he brings uh, uh, Dokin Rai back to life. And then he chides these two for the silliness of their conflict. Um, and, and what I found, and just as an aside, I find in all these stories, the conflict is almost never religious. It's about... Uh, is your daughter eligible to marry my son? Uh, you know, who's going to collect the money off of the tolls? Uh, you know, and, and issues of, uh, of uh, hubris where somebody's been insulted and they have to make amends and so forth. So the conflict is actually in a very different vein. So in this story, uh, and, and this is one of my favorite moments in all of these tales, Shotopir has just brought... Uh, Doking Rai back to life, and the two of them are standing there. All of their tiger armies are decimated, and, and they're brought back to life. And the lead tiger, Daud Khan, Shatopir stops chiding the two men, turns to Daud Khan, and he says to him, in a decade, your uh, cubs are probably not going to be able to find enough food to eat because humans are intruding on the Shunderban and laying waste to the environment. Now, this is uh, uh, 1690, okay? <laughs> and so it, it, you talk about a prescient observation 
And, and uh, of course, it, as we know, it is coming true as the Shunderbund are being uh, decimated by all the human activity. But this, this captures uh, this need for there to be a balance between humans and the uh, you know, animal world and between the different types of humans that, that, that life is too tough for people to be in conflict. You have to pull together. And, um, you know, it sounds like, uh, I mean, it, it's a kind of covert moralizing. Uh, it sounds more overt when you talk about it like that, but the way it's written up, it's a real subtle message that finally sort of seeps through. And, and that message actually comes through all of the stories. And I that's that signaled, and that's the earliest of these three major texts. Um, and and that that signaled um one of the underlying themes. Um, and sure enough, it plays out. Uh, and I chose these stories because they are the most popular of the of the set, uh, although I did not translate, uh, in the case of the uh, story of Champavati, I did not translate the one that is most widely circulated for uh, literary reasons. The the version I translated, I felt was uh, uh, a little better as a, as a piece of literature. So anyway, these these three stories. And then finally, the story of uh, Kwajikizer, who is the um, only Quranic figure in this set. Kwajikizer is the uh, mentor of all the great Sufi saints. And it, it starts with uh, Musa, with Moses. And this is the story out of the Quran, uh, told for the first time in Bengali, uh, about Musa's instruction by Kwajikizer. But now all the other characters are also instructed by Kwajikizer in this uh, set. So that binds them together. And by the way, I did that translation with Aisha Irani, uh, who uh, had been working on the Nobi Bangsho, which is the text it came out of, and has produced a fabulous monograph um, that Oxford has published. Fascinating indeed. Um... Well, thank you for making this available to the English-speaking world. Um, before we close for today, was there anything else uh, uh, about either work that you wanted to touch on, hope we touch on? Uh, I, I think um, what it does, what the, the two books, in a way, um, are the end result of what I've been doing uh, for the last four and a half decades um, as a, a scholar of, of Bengal, I, I started actively translating uh, back in the 70s and uh, have been doing it ever since. But it's it, the questions I was asking in my earlier work about the, the uh, Gordia Vaishnava movement, the life of Chaitanya, the, the hagiographies, uh, was what kind of work do do hagiographies perform? Uh, and it's a much more overt uh, and well-known category in the study of religion. And then it made me realize once I stumbled onto these uh, additional, this trove, as you put it, the, the, of these texts, this, um, that we needed a, a different approach. So it's all, it, I don't normally use the word organic, but in fact, each, each book has come out of what I had done previously in a very um, surprisingly consistent way. And in this sense, I feel like uh, now I'm actually going to return 
uh, to the Vaishnava materials with fresh eyes after 40 years or 30 years and uh, take a new look and do more translation um, of uh, some of those uh, things and, and just see um, if maybe um, the work on the piers, the fictional material, might make us read those other narratives just a wee bit differently. Fantastic. Well, we'll have to have you back. <laughs> when you turn, whenever you churn out um, uh, that work with these uh, uh, these enriched set of eyes, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Uh, for those listening, we've been speaking uh, to Dr. Tony Stewart about a fascinating open access publication called Witness to Marvel's Sufism and Literary Imagination. Um, the work, the the primary text that he analyzes in that work are also published um, as a, a, a translation project. Links for both are available in the podcast. Uh, until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating the power of stories, however unassuming. Take care. <laughs>